Welcome to the Autism and Neurodiversity Podcast. We're here to bring you helpful information from leading experts and give you effective tools and support. I'm Jason Grigla, a licensed counselor and founder of Techie for Life, a specialized mentoring program for neurodiverse young adults. And I'm Debbie Grigla, a certified life coach. And maybe most importantly, we're also parents to our own atypical young adults. Hello, champions of neurodiversity and autism. This is Jason Grigla. I'm going to be doing an individual solo podcast today on something that I don't think most people have ever heard of, or if they have, they assume it's something different. And we're going to be talking about PDA, which is not public displays of affection, which would actually be a really interesting topic in another podcast. But PDA is pathological demand avoidance pathological demand demand avoidance and it is not a recognized um, DSM-5 or ICD-10 ICD um, category yet but it actually has been proposed and recently it has been proposed as a specific subset of autism spectrum disorder. Um, it may ultimately be its own category but I think it is actually going to become a recognized disorder. And the term pathological means that it is so ingrained and deeply wired into the brain that it defies all logic and usually um, supersedes thought and choice, um, undermining things that someone would actually like. And the demand aspect of pathological demand avoidance refers to any feeling not reality, but feeling that I am expected, I have to, I ought to, I need to, I should, I must, I'm commanded to, any feeling from outside of the person, whether it's logical or not, if it's perceived that there's no ownership in the, the choice and that there is something expected to do, the hardwired reaction becomes, I won't do it. I can't do it. And saying I can't is actually just as dishonest as someone saying you have to, uh, which isn't true either. Nobody has to do anything. Um, we do have to follow the laws if we don't want to get arrested or go to jail, but we don't have to follow the laws. And in in the counseling world and psychology we often talk about those terms of have tos, ought tos, need tos, musts as terms called imperatives. And if something outside of us makes it imperative that we comply, most of us bristle. Most of us don't want to do something that others tell us we have to do. That's why a really good mentor and teacher always uses an if-then type of an approach. And in parenting, if-then looks like this. You have to go to bed. You have to go to bed and, and you get into a power struggle and a conflict as opposed to bedtime's at 10. I can't make you go to bed. I can try, but that would turn into a really bad fight or a situation uh, where you don't like me when we're done and we want to avoid that. Um, so I can't make you go to bed. And at the same time, if you don't go to bed, this is what the consequences will be even more than just throwing a bunch of consequences that are negative as far as punishment, it would be a good thing to explain, hey, if, if you don't go to bed, 
you're not going to get enough sleep and tomorrow you'll be cranky in the morning and you will not be able to um, think straight and you'll be mad at me and you might be late for school and then you're going to have a bad day. I, I really wish that you would choose to go to bed. Um, you don't have to go to bed, but if you don't, here's what will happen. And that, that form of explanation where cause and effect or natural consequences is always better. Um, and then the last term in pathological demand avoidance is avoidance, meaning at all cost, I will avoid the anxiety and the feeling that something is telling me that I have to do something or that I should, must do something. And pathological demand avoidance has been really prevalent in probably 30% of our students and semi-prevalent in another 30%. And then probably 30% of our students don't really have that attribute at all. But so, so for at least more than half, 60% of our students, they have some pathological demand avoidance or extreme pathological avoidance. And so it's, let me give you a, a couple of definitions or some criteria Typically, students or young adults or anyone, I guess, anyone with pathological demand avoidance, in their early years, um, they start avoiding ordinary demands and missing milestones. And what tends to happen when our, when our kids miss milestones is we start pushing them to hit those milestones. And as we start to push and their anxiety goes up and they either don't want to or they're afraid to, or they don't know how. And there's a million reasons why their anxiety goes up about expectations. We know that about um, autism in general and all neurodiversity. Um, the more we push, the more they dig in their heels, the more they get anxious, the more they feel out of control and become defiant. And so the most common mistake with this pathological demand avoidance situation is that we as parents assume that they are being defiant. And when it comes to defiance, that's a behavioral problem that requires a behavioral consequence. Do what I say or else. Um, you're just being stubborn and you're just being difficult. And why won't you let me help you do things that are good for you? And why are you being so difficult? And then the anxiety in the parents goes up and the anxiety in the kids go up. And then you get into not just a conflict where there's a difference where the, the child or the young adult really would be benefited by doing something, but they won't. But now it turns into a relational problem and it's oppositional defiant disorder. And most parents assume they're just being defiant. And sometimes the best way to deal with defiance is to take the kid down a few notches you know, they really need to learn their place. Don't they need to be humbled? And I think those are true to some extent, and they're highly ineffective with pathological demand avoidance, which is not the same as oppositional defiant disorder. Um, they can look very similar, especially in behavior, but the motives are completely different. So as, uh, as the child grows, um, we go back to some of the criteria as they as they get older they continue to avoid demands miss milestones and they start to having escalated anxiety and the parent and the child gets into a dance where the parent says you will and the child says hell no not a chance and 
the reason that they don't want to do it becomes an absolute survival situation. It's as simple and black and white to the neurodiverse and autistic mind that I cannot continue to live and I cannot be at peace. I cannot be comfortable if I'm in crises and I have anxiety. So I will do nothing that puts me into an anxious, overwhelming place. I can't argue with that logic as a parent or as a therapist. I have a hard time saying you're wrong. You're supposed to be totally overwhelmed and do what you're supposed to do. I don't care how bad the anxiety gets. You can't just blow off something that is so hardwired and pathological as the crisis state that pathological demand avoidance creates. And if you do a, a behavioral approach, it turns into a power struggle. And now you've, you've immediately lost. Even if you get them to do what you wanted to do, the goal was never to get them to do an action. It was to create an environment where they, where, where they want to do um, fulfilling, um, progressing, developmentally appropriate milestone achievements. And you can make anyone do anything you want. But the goal is to create a young person that wants to do good things that are progressive and lead to independence and self-reliance. Um, another criteria is mood swings in and around um, expectations, impulsivity in general, which is you know clearly neurodiversity and autism um, for the most part as well. Oftentimes, they're very comfortable in role play and pretending. And I think that's interesting because... If they're in control of what they're thinking, imagining, and in their environment, then nothing can put them back into that crises, overwhelmed, anxious state. And so they have a lively imagination. They really enjoy going back and forth in controlled, consistent, understood, um, transparent situations where they really are in charge. Um, and as children, they, they might um, take on the form of a, of a toy that they can become. They might take on the role of the parent and pretend that they're the parent so that they can tell people what they can and can't do. Um, oftentimes for these, for these young adults or children that have pathological demand avoidance, there's some language delay, which I'm not sure. I'm not sure why that's, that's a part of pathological demand avoidance instead of just autism in general, except that it seems to feed into a sense of passivity. And they just don't want to have to talk. You expect me to talk? I'm expected to talk. I don't want to have to talk. I don't want to be expected to talk. Um, I want to do what I want to do. I want to control my own choices. And I don't know anyone that doesn't want to do that. And it's so typical it's so typical with anything in neurodiversity that their traits and attributes and characteristics are very typical and then they're multiplied by three or four and they're taken to the extreme as far as self-loathing or obsessive compulsive behaviors or self-destructivity, um, temper tantrums, impulsiveness, moodiness, any issue that a, a typical brain would deal with. Um, those who are neurodiverse or atypical have the same characteristics just taken to an extreme. Um, a lot of times there's a obsessive behavior where it's over the top. Um, and I think also that fits with the need to control and be in control. And it becomes almost a manic 
response to demands and expectations. Um, it is very much closely connected to autism. And I think that's that's really important. So here's another here's another de- definition I just want to read for you. De- demand avoidance in the PDA profile looks different from what others what others on the autism spectrum experience because of its extreme nature and obsessive quality. So this extreme avoidance it, it extends to the most basic demands of everyday living, not just the avoidance of hard things, um, but if there's any feeling of, I have to get my shoes on, oh, good luck making me get my shoes on. I'm done. If I have to, then my anxiety goes up. There's no way I'm going to let my anxiety go up, go up. I'm done. I don't care how much I want to put on the shoes. I don't care how much I love my new shoes. I don't care if I have to miss out on the birthday party I've been looking to forward to all week. If now I have to get my shoes on, their brain hardwires into what I would consider a neural pathway that is a valley. And as the water runs down the valley or the thoughts and the neural pathway runs down this really deeply entrenched valley, it's almost impossible to get that water moved into a different channel. And even if everything about putting their shoes on is what they ultimately want in the moment, in that minute, very short perspective, tunnel vision, laser focused crises, um, survival moment, they are not putting those shoes on. If I put my shoes on, everything bad will happen. And that's all they can think. And that's all they can feel. Um, so they even have a hard time complying with their own expectations, even if they're self-imposed, um, even if they're things they really want to do. And that's probably the saddest part. And that's what softens me the most is, yeah, if I'm wanting them to do something and I butt heads with them and get into a power struggle, it's hard for me to soften and say, wow, they're really struggling with this. But when I watch them beating themselves up because they want to do something and they know they that they want to, they know that they would be benefited by it and they still can't or won't do it because they get stuck in, an, in a what actually feels very similar to an obsessive compulsive loop where they obsess about how bad it will be and that they can't and then and then they don't and that's the compulsion is to dig in their heels and become um, oppositional and defiant so it's interesting that this situation is actually about equal in in genetic male and female there's no um, there's there's nothing that shows that it actually occurs more in males than females, which isn't true for autism in general. But of those who are diagnosed with autism, it seems to be equal. And I think it's important to recognize that even though this this situation, this very hard, difficult, conflictual, possibly contentious situation between parents and children or teachers and students or therapists and clients... Um, even though it seems like there's a lot of social emotional going on, um, their brains are hardwired to be like this. Meaning, you could have done everything right, and still, because of their own anxiety and their own brain, um, they could have a very negative, hard, oppositional, defiant 
pathological demand avoidant uh, reaction. Um, and, and that's actually a little hopeless for me. And now let me explain why. If a parent does everything right and it doesn't help, we're screwed because there's nothing we can change. I, I almost want it to be all the parents' fault when someone has pathological demand avoidance, because if it's the parents' fault, guess what? We can change that equation. We can be the part of the equation that changes and fixes it so that the outcome is different and how we interact with um, with the, the person we're supporting or mentoring um, is, is the solution. And that's simply not the case. Um, I think a lot of parents who get into the behavioral approach of you'll do what I say or else, the discipline, I think they're speaking two totally different languages. And then the contention and the relationship issues start to um, magnify and grow and pile on and it just gets harder and harder. Um, so I do think anyone who is in a position of authority or power, which is where demand comes from, it's hard to demand something of somebody, of somebody you have no power differential over or no power position over. Um, sometimes my three-year-old would demand something when she was young and, and we would just smile and laugh because we're, they're just in no position to make any demands. Um, so it often is exacerbated by anyone who is in a power position or a position of influence. Um, eventually, similar to oppositional defiant disorder, the person struggling with pathological demand avoidance cuts off all relationships and cuts off anyone's ability to have influence in their lives. And this may be the other really sad part for me as someone who very much treasures and cherishes attachment that they push people away because people who have control or influence in their lives will expect things of them. And who can live in a world where their life is full of anxiety and survival mode all the time? And so they retreat back to a comfortably stuck or comfortably miserable place that often leads to depression, loneliness, and isolation just because they want to not feel like they're in crises all the time. It's like they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, so it is. it does feel like a very bleak, dark situation. We'll talk about some of the things we can do in a few minutes. Um, a lot of times, one of the defense mechanisms for pathological demand avoidance is they become highly social. They learn how to answer questions really cleverly in ways that make it so they don't have to commit. Um, or they distract you with shiny social ability and humor and even charisma where they can be so in charge and so proactive that people miss the opportunities to pin down expectations. Um, it's things like they can say, um, I, I'll do it in 10 minutes or yeah, I'll get to that later. Or I already did it knowing that it would take them a long time to figure out that they actually didn't. Um, so a lot of passive aggressive things to avoid um, that anxiety crisis state that happens when they feel like they have to do something. Um, so their social skills are often really good. Uh, they can they can actually do really good eye contact a lot of the times. Their conversation skills are more advanced than someone else possibly on the spectrum. 
um, or at least neurodiverse. And that's because they have strengthened that brain muscle, that social communicative part of their brain as a defense mechanism to avoid the crisis state and the survival state that they often get in if they feel like they're expected to do do something. Um, Oftentimes they can become emotionally manipulative or volatile um, using emotions to avoid any expectation of what people might expect of them or what they think people are going to expect of them. And, And in reality, the world does expect a lot of things. Um, and so if they can be really happy to distract and avoid, but then when someone really pins them down, they become angry and reactive and volatile to get people to back off. Um, that actually can come across very similar to something we call borderline personality disorder or borderline traits, um, where their emotions are not typical. They're they're reactive, they're controlled, they're manipulated, which is a really exhausting place to be for anyone who has to use those as defense mechanisms so that they can at least avoid a lot of pain. And we're going to do another podcast about the difference between how good it feels to just not be in crises and they think that's it. So they may just want to stay in their room and be on their on their screens or escape life because that's better than being in the crises of what, of what the alternative is. Um, but then they're never really happy because you have to be doing progressing developmentally appropriate milestone accomplishments to actually feel validated, but just not being in crises is a huge relief and enough for most people. And I think a lot of us sit on the outside and judge and say, wow, why why could you live like that? How could you even live when all you're doing is wasting away on your screen or playing video games or you know doing whatever it is that you do to stay out of crises? But being in crises is so exhausting that do that not being in crises is the goal. And that's not really a life worth living, but it's better than than the alternative. So one of the goals is to actually get them out of their crises and safe comfortably stuck place where they're comfortably miserable, but at least not in crises and move them into a situation where they start to feel accomplished and develop their identity. We'll talk about that another time, but pathological demand avoidance is such an enemy to developmental progress that I wanted to bring that up for a minute. So there's often a lot of triggers with with PDA. Uh, The triggers sometimes it's just a parent because if the parent represents demands and expectations, the parent themselves becomes the trigger and then the relationship crashes and it's hard. Um, that's, that's another good example of why Debbie and I could not be the mentors for our son. Um, when he got into his early twenties, it just didn't work anymore because anything we said or did turned into a negative, even if they were good things, Um, And so we relied on others to mentor and influence our son. So some of the strategies, I want to get into the strategies and environment that is helpful. So some of the strategies are how you interact on an equal ground as a partner, not a parent. And instead of having power of influence, you use relationship of influence and a lot of logic and explaining and coming 
coming about a situation without direct confrontation because that will avoid many of the triggers where the alarm goes off in the head of the of the person with PDA and the alarm goes off and says, nope, danger, danger, um, expectation ahead. And then they shut down and you've lost them. And once they go into their shell, it's way harder to get them back out. And I use this, this metaphor uh, quite a bit that when we are trying to influence our students at Techie for Life, if we push them too hard, it's kind of like we're all walking on um, a layer of ice on a pond or a lake. And as long as you do it right, you don't break through. But once you break through, if you push them too hard and they crack, once you go down through the ice into the water, it is nearly impossible to get back up on the ice because any pressure you exert at that point, you're just breaking more ice and staying in the water. And once you've broken through the layer, um, it's nearly impossible to get back up and start over. So learning that balance between how far can I push them and back off, push back off, um, which reminds me of one of the one of the tools that we employ. We've we've labeled it. Um, oh my gosh, I'm gonna have to remember the term. I'll come back to that in a minute when I remember it. Uh, but it's where we continue to annoy them and remind them in small touches over hours and days and weeks and months until they finally give in and say, fine, I'll do it because they want us off their back. But we don't push them enough that they dig their heels in and say, well, they might say, no, I'm never going to do it. Uh, But we just keep at it. We just keep pecking. And eventually they realize, okay, it's worth it just to get them off my back. And then they'll do something that they didn't originally want to do. Anyway, it's kind of fun. So creating an environment where they own the decision. Hey, hey, we're going to go... We're going to go like we talked about. Um, it's time to head out. Do you do you want to get ready to go? Or are you ready to go? And if they say nope, you say, okay. Um, when will you be ready to go? And they say, I don't know. And you say, well, I'd like to go in time so that we don't miss it. We've, we've been looking forward to this and I'm really excited to go with you. Um, or it's really important that we get groceries so we have food this week. Or... I really want to avoid you being late for school because I know how anxious you get when you're late and you have to walk in late. That just makes your whole day more anxious. Do you think I could help you get ready to go now? And you give them the option and the choice. And if they say yes, but I'm having a hard time wanting to put on my shoes and, or they just say, I'm not wearing my shoes. And then you've, you know, you're already in it and you've got to figure out a way to do it. Well, you don't have to wear your shoes. What would you like to do? So you don't just let them win and you're finished Uh, But you give them control and you immediately reinforce that you don't have to wear your shoes. And without your shoes, I don't think they're going to let you into the school. What do you want to do? Well, I can't wear my shoes, so I guess I can't go to school. And instead of taking the bait and getting into a power struggle, a good parent sits down and says, I'm going to use a stitch in time to save nine later. If I get into a power struggle, I will lose the whole day and I won't be able to go to work or my child will miss another day and I'll have to stay home and babysit, or I will be so angry and frustrated. And some days that will happen. Um, But as you learn and get better, and as they learn that you're giving them control and power and choice, it's going to get easier and easier. And so the the conversation might go like, well, I 
I don't like wearing my shoes either. What is it about your shoes you don't like today? And then they might be able to find something that they they clearly didn't have any insight as to why they don't want to wear their shoes. They just don't feel like they want to. And so they can't or they won't. And they say, well, I just don't want to. And I say, I know, but why? I know you love those shoes right there, whatever they were. Those are your favorites. When you're wearing those shoes, you feel super fast and you love to go outside and play. How come those shoes don't feel right today? Which is kind of back into that obsessive compulsive feeling again. And I think they're very closely related um, PDA and obsessive compulsive or OCD. And if you can get them talking, oftentimes you can turn the tables on the situation where they realize, I guess I do want to wear my shoes. But if you get into a conflict confrontational situation, they will dig in and that trench goes so deep, they'll never get out of it. Um, that was a great, uh, a great blog online by a mother. And she talked about 10 things that we should know about pathological demand avoidance. And I want to hit on a couple of those. The first one is that PDA is not oppositional defiant disorder. And if you deal with it the same, you will lose and your your mentee will lose, whoever you're trying to help. PDA often overlaps with other autism profiles. When you've got things like ADD, ADHD, Tourette's, um, chronic fatigue syndrome, dyspraxia, sometimes epilepsy, sleep disorder, dyslexia, OCD, um, developmental disorders. This can fit into any of those as well. Um, another point is that it is very much related to anxiety. So if you can help manage anxiety around the situation, you're going to help them learn how to manage PDA. And so instead of just expecting them to do it and say, you'll be glad later, um, that kind of works sometimes, but it's usually it's usually not successful. Um, direct and indirect demands cause anxiety. If they consider it a demand or feel demanded of, demanded of you're going to have um, a really hard situation that's going to be worse, depending on how you handle it. Sometimes demands literally cause a panic attack and it's wise to just know when the survival mechanism is too deep and in a sense has won the situation you may just say you know what i know how badly you'd really like to go to school and see your friends today but it doesn't look like it's going to be a good day for that um and you know what's sad is if it's their fourth time missing in a college class or a or a test they might just fail and if it's their third time not going to work, they probably will lose their job. And I think when people say that neurodiversity is not a disability, they're not, they're not giving credit or respect to how difficult it is to have some of these attributes. And if you can't hold a job because of the way your brain works, it has nothing to do with you being lazy or difficult or immature. It has everything to do with hardwiring in a neurodiverse brain that can't be fixed with medication or counseling and therefore causes a lack of independence, lack of self-reliance. They need more support and it's hard to tease out which one it is. Are they just being difficult or is this really a part of their physiological makeup? Um, and I, I think that's a discussion for another time. So typical parenting strategies 
are not generally successful. You end up having to do three times the amount of work for a third of the same, um, for a third of what you would get from a typical child in their developmental and quality of life enjoyment because their life is hard. Uh, and anxiety and fears is at, in in the middle of it. And their rigid thinking obviously doesn't help. And so most of us don't like demands put on us. That's different than PDA. Um, and using the right language and creating the right environment where they have control and their anxiety is low is the best thing you can do to manage it. Another thing that's important to know is a child with PDA grows up to be an adult with PDA. They might be able to manage the symptoms better and have a little more self-control. That doesn't mean their anxiety is necessarily gone. And they don't they don't go from PDA to oppositional defiant disorder just because they're snots. They, they still have PDA, which is different than oppositional defiant disorder. So the last thing I want to say is anyone with PDA has a big heart that cares so deeply about one, making their own choices, two, wanting things to go well, and three, they have a big, sensitive, tender heart. Otherwise, they wouldn't have so much anxiety and fear and negative thoughts about anything in life that feels like a demand or an imperative. Think about people who don't care. They're, they are never going to have anxiety. The more anxiety someone has, the more they care. And that's what we can tap into. Most people with PDA are affectionate. They can be charming, sociable, chatty, creative, and they usually have amazing imaginations and sense of humors. They can usually light up the room, but then the downside and the side that I consider true disability is when they can't function or progress because the more they care, um, the more they have to pretend they don't care, the more they choose not to care, the more they choose to not do something that they would actually like to do on their own if if their brain didn't get in the way. So good luck with understanding PDA in your child. Every child's a little different. If your child isn't oppositional or, or defined in any way, great. Um, I'm sure you'll have other issues to deal with instead. But for most of you, there will be some aspect of pathological demand avoidance that you'll have to learn how to manage. Know that it's not their fault and also know that Strong discipline and power difference will not be the solution to the problem. Um, it will just increase their anxiety and they'll dig in deeper at their own expense and it will destroy them and you as the person who cares for them. So thanks for joining me today. Um, interesting subject for me. I'm actually learning quite a bit just from preparing for this podcast that I'm going to apply um, especially my understanding and empathy. Well, I, I should call it sympathy. I, I think empathy because I have OCD myself um, and I understand what it feels like to know something is totally illogical, but have it still run my life in ways that I can't necessarily control. But I can learn to control it over time with practice in other ways. I can't control OCD directly and I think PDA is the same way. The trick is to create an environment where your anxiety is low and you don't get into a power struggle because once you do that, you're already done. It's already over. You've lost. So good luck and keep fighting the good fight. And we'll join you on another podcast. Bye. 
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Autism and Neurodiversity with Jason and Debbie. If you want to learn more about our work, come visit us at jasondebbie.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-D-E-B-B-I-E.com.